0: Welcome to the Saltwater Strategist Pacific Series, a product of the Australian Naval Institute. In this series, we talk to academics, strategists, and maritime professionals from across the region on the maritime security challenges and opportunities in the Pacific. The Saltwater Strategist Pacific Series is proudly brought to you by BAE Systems.
1: Increasing the likelihood or risk of return to state-on-state conflict Underpinning that is the importance of allies, partnerships, the need for defence to future-proof by embracing technology and innovation, and we've got to embrace talent to deal with that problem.
0: Rear Admiral Steve Morehouse has had a distinguished operational career with the Royal Navy. Rear Admiral Morehouse and I first met whilst he was in command of the frigate HMS Lancaster, subsequently deploying to the Caribbean on counter-narcotics operations. Since our time in Lancaster, Admiral Morehouse has commanded HMS Ocean during her tenure as NATO's High Readiness Command Platform and Coalition Task Force 150 under the Combined Maritime Forces, a multinational task force charged with delivering maritime security across the Western Indian Ocean. In 2018, Rear Admiral Morehouse was the first seagoing commanding officer of one of the Royal Navy's two aircraft carriers, the HMS Prince of Wales. And in 2021, He deployed to the Indo-Pacific in command of the 1st Royal Navy Carrier Strike Group to visit the region in over 20 years. Rear admiral Morehouse was appointed an Order of the British Empire in 2015 and is currently serving as the Royal Navy's Director of Force Generation. Steve, thanks for joining us. It's wonderful to speak to you again after all these years. Our audience and I are lucky to have someone of your operational pedigree to talk with us about your recent 2021 experiences commanding the Queen Elizabeth Carrier Strike Group in the Indo-Pacific and the future of the Royal Navy operations in this region.
1: Jen, it's great to be here and and great to hear from you again and reminisce about our time in Lancaster, which seems uh, like only yesterday.
0: Steve, in 2021, you deployed to the Indo-Pacific in command of the Queen Elizabeth Strike Group. Significantly, this deployment represented the first Royal Navy Carrier Strike Group deployment to the Indo-Pacific since Hong Kong was transferred from the United Kingdom to China in 1997. To set the scene, can you tell our audience a little bit about the composition of the Carrier Strike Group and the nature of your deployment?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's probably worth saying that that, uh, that deployment in 1997 was my first operational deployment as a, as a young aviator when I deployed for the first time. So. Uh, to go full circle for my first, to what was probably my last seagoing appointment, you know, was, was really fortuitous. But the, the composition of the group, um, I mean, clearly fundamentally designed around and built around uh, Queen Elizabeth, the carrier herself, uh, and the air wing. And the air wing, uh, F 35s, and, and the unique element of this particular deployment was that it was both a UK squadron and a United States Marine Corps F 35B squadron. So that gave us the mass on deck. But critically, that you know, interoperable, and to some extent, we may get onto this in the conversation, almost interchangeable capability between those two squadrons, two nations. And then also on the carrier, a blend of Merlin aircraft, anti-submarine Merlin Mark IIs, the fledgling crow's nest capability that's providing that uh, airborne surveillance and control capability, uh, Merlin Mark IVs that offer that lift Uh, capability within the group and also a form of personnel recovery uh, search and rescue and then out with the carrier you've got that what i would describe as the layers of the onion uh, that go out providing support and protection force protection to the group so uh, type 23 frigates providing anti-submarine warfare uh, responsibilities two of those two type 45 air defense destroyers and then our auxiliary shipping, solid support through Fort Victoria, and then the Tide class providing the liquid for fuels. And then the other unique and fantastic element of this particular deployment was international bias design. And by that, we've talked about the Marine Corps on board in in the fixed wing world, but we also had the United States Navy and and their Arlie Burke, the Sullivans that came with us, you know, completed the full force generation program with us, but also the, uh, the Dutch Navy and Averdsen, you know, their multi frigate, uh, who again, completed the full force generation package, and then deployed all the way from the UK out to the Indo-Pacific and back. So absolutely international bias design, a blend of capabilities, you know, so a really, really exciting group. And then there were many, many others, almost too many to count different nations and different units that joined for various periods some for as short as an afternoon uh, for, a, for a little bit of tactical activity, others with us for periods of weeks as we were located and exercising in certain regions. But hopefully that gives you a feel for, for the core group at least.
0: No, that does. And uh, wow, what a complex mix of capabilities and fantastic mix of nations for that deployment. And I didn't realise that you bring that interesting insight, Steve, of having served in the last two deployments of a carrier strike group from the Royal Navy to the Indo-Pacific, uh, albeit nearly 20 years apart. Yeah,
1: you know, absolutely. And I think that in some ways is what made this one so special, not just for myself in that it was an opportunity to return to that region, but if the deployment in 1997 was very much a sort of moment where we were sort of retreating away, then 2021 was very much you know, a message of, of not just the Royal Navy, but the United Kingdom wanting to be operating back in that region, increasing our presence and our persistence. And what better way to do it than with our new capability? But also taking others with us, not just the the, the units within that task group, but the other nations that we operated with throughout the period.
0: Steve, I'd like to pick up on that point there that you mentioned about the message of the carrier strike group operating in the region. Would you explore with our audience, please? why the region was chosen for the first deployment of the Queen Elizabeth Carrier Strike Group and what the significance of the region is to the UK.
1: We can't get away from, or we couldn't get away from the fact that we needed an initial deployment to, to in its most simplistic terms, you know, demonstrate and test and prove to ourselves that the capability that we bought worked and everything that we talked about for a number of years, you know, it, it did what it said on the tin. And so to do that, you needed a deployment that was stressing in the activity that you were doing. So the further you are from home, then the more stressing that is in logistics and you can really test yourself and your ability to sustain that group. So in simple terms, the further you go, the more challenging that often is. And so that played a part. And then of course, wrapped around all of that, uh, on the back of the integrated review was was the clear declaration of the growing importance or the returning of importance of the region to the country. So those planets all aligned uh, around the need to do a deployment then, that actually what a better demonstration, not just of the capability and proving to ourselves militarily that we were back in the game, but actually what better demonstration of, of our commitment and our seriousness about the region than taking the new capability out there.
0: Steve, I'm glad you mentioned the Integrated Review. I'd uh, like to turn us a moment to some of the strategic documents that have come out from the UK in the last couple of years. And the Integrated Review, uh, a review of security, defence development and foreign policy entitled Global Britain in a Competitive Age, a key feature of that refers to the Indo-Pacific tilt. What does the Indo-Pacific tilt mean for the Royal Navy and the future of operations in the Indo-Pacific region?
1: I mean, I think it's that's really simple for us. It, it means a, a commitment to a long-term, integrated engagement to ensure that we safeguard both our economic and our security interests in that in that area. That open-minded, democratic society, similar values are all protected. And defence is just one strand of that offer from the UK. It's an integrated offer to the region. And, and the Navy will be at the front of that. Uh, you know, there's absolutely no doubt about it. Lots of different examples. You know, it doesn't mean a carrier deployment every year, but, you know, we're already seeing in the um, the river class vessels that we've got out there, Spey and Tamar, that are now persistently operating for deployed from the UK on an enduring basis. Uh, you know, and that, that's just one example of, of that. You know, and CSG a landmark return to that region, and, and we'll continue to build on that. As I say, defence is just one strand of it. There's a you know economics within there, commerce, you know, diplomacy and engagement. You know, so it, it's it's a multi-multi-stranded, integrated approach.
0: You mentioned the uh, recent deployments of the offshore patrol vessels HMS Spey and Tamar to the Indo-Pacific region. Do you see this commitment either at the level of two vessels or greater as an enduring commitment of the Royal Navy to this region?
1: Absolutely. CSG 21, you know, is now being followed up by those two vessels. So that they're, they're clear. But we're going further in a number of different areas. I mean, clearly, there was the the recent landmark signing of the AUKUS agreement is is another example there, you know, of of our commitment to to deepen the cooperation and the engagement in the Indo-Pacific, you know, with with close allies. We've recently signed a memorandum of cooperation with Japan to enable uh, future development opportunities on combat air systems, you know, and joint technologies. And there are other activities that are going on there, you know, with regard to cutting-edge uh, technologies that we want to operate with and develop partnerships in the region and interoperability. I mean, I think the one thing that the carrier strike deployment is that. You can't just turn up and expect things to happen seamlessly. You know, and, you, and you'll remember, Jen, from our time, just in, in, I'll say just in a frigate, but it takes practice. It takes understanding. You know, one of the examples I often used on the deployment was you it, it's like turning up with an iPhone and your friend is using a Samsung phone. They've got to be able to talk to one another and they've got to be able to talk to one another at the speed of relevance. And you only do this by working together, understanding one another, training together, educating together. And, and that's what you know this is all about.
0: Steve, on the point of the UK's enduring commitment to the Indo-Pacific and the current river-class offshore patrol vessels that are based in the region, do you see this commitment expanding and seeing more Royal Navy capability operating more permanently in the region?
1: Absolutely. So the the batch twos are very much for us. Um, We're learning every day about uh, the challenges of permanently basing those units forward, rule mounting, uh, ships companies through the commercial support solutions we need, nations that we can operate with you know, and, and how we do things together. So recently one of those platforms has been down with Australia and it was your the Royal Australian Navy Sea Training Unit provided the training as opposed to us having to send out uh, elements from our own sea training organisation. So some fantastic, fantastic activity and we're learning lessons. And then we're also working to see how we can fly forward capabilities that, that augment those platforms for, for periods of time you know whether that's autonomous vehicles that we operate there for a brief period of time and then bring them back depending on exactly on the nature of tasking that they're doing at that particular moment. And then I think as you look forward, you know the aspiration is that they would be replaced potentially by the type 31 platforms. so again slightly bigger and with greater capability you know it's really important that we understand now what that might look like, some of the challenges we face so we're better placed when we we integrate them. And then in that persistency, it's elements such as the future commando force and how we operate our littoral readiness groups. So again, looking to have them forward deployed, but you could see them pulsing in and out is one of our aspirations and, and that we're working through in the region. So probably from the Western Indian Ocean, but pulsing in and out maybe east of Malacca, operating with partners there developing that future commando force and again some of the innovative capabilities and technologies in crewless systems uh etc etc so i think you know a blend of platforms that are there 24 7 so to speak and then a greater pulsing of other capabilities i think when you combine that you'll see uh, you know a royal navy royal marine naval service footprint and activity there's greater in the next few years than you may well have seen previously. And then you blend that with, with education and training and whether that's people coming to the UK to train or our training uh, of others. I think it all wraps, you know, there's, there's many, many different strands that will will build on what at the moment is, is those two batch two river class.
0: You mentioned uh, the points about integration and interoperability in the region and flag some of the key agreements the UK has signed up to with respect to capability including AUKUS and the MOU in Japan. Do you think the 2021 integrated review has meant some significant changes for the force structure of the Royal Navy?
1: I think we're always, you know, looking at and developing your force structure. You, you know, it, it's a very, very dangerous place to be, to be anchored and wedded to the way you've always done things previously. So, you know, I think throughout the last hundreds of years for the Royal Navy, you know, we've always seeking to be modernizing and embracing, you know, new technologies and making sure that you're relevant to counter not just the threats today, but tomorrow. So, you know, I think increasingly, you know, we would agree and acknowledge that state-based threats are probably more to the fore than they may well have been five, 10 years ago, you know, and that's as well as those sub-threshold challenges. And I think the Integrated Review represented or demonstrated an absolute commitment from the UK government to transforming our future force and the capabilities. And with that, the structures, you know, of of not just the Royal Navy, but I know the British Army and the Royal Air Force are, are in exactly the same space. So, you know, that means we have to invest in our research and our development portfolio, you know, developing warfighting technology and turning those capabilities into something that really does give you operational advantage over those who may cause you, a, you know, a challenge or a threat. So clearly with the aircraft carrier, we continue to develop those fifth generation capabilities and how we'll operate those task groups. But it's not just in those wells, it's on the surface, below the surface, and very much in the information space as well, that we're also you know looking to develop. So across the board, I think in the Navy, you would recognize a number of transformation projects. So frigate transitions from Type 23 to Type 26, the embodiment of new capabilities into Type 45, submarine transitions to Astute, Vanguard to Dreadnought. And even in our smaller uh, vessels in the mine countermeasures, you know, developing into the future autonomous systems, And then with our Royal Marines, the development of the future commando force. Almost every element of the Navy is in some form of transition at the moment, uh, which is absolutely underpinned by the Integrated Review.
0: Steve, one of the subordinate documents to the Integrated Review is the United Kingdom's 2021 Command paper, entitled Defence in the Global Age. I'd like to read out a quote from it about the Indo-Pacific and some of the maritime security challenges. It states that the Indo-Pacific region matters to the UK, in the decades to come, it will be the crucible for many of the most pressing global challenges from climate and biodiversity to maritime security and geopolitical competition linked to the rules and norms. I'm wondering if you could talk to us about what the Royal Navy views as the maritime security challenges in the Indo-Pacific region and how it sees its role in addressing these significant challenges.
1: My brief period and time out there last year absolutely brought it home to me you realise, you know, 20 years gap or so, you know, how quickly you can forget things. But the importance of the region, the scale of the region, again, you often look at places based on uh, on the projection of the chart for where you live. So of course, you know, from the United Kingdom and how we project our charts and maps, then yes, you know, it's a distance away, but also, you know, you can convince yourself it's smaller than it is. And it's not, it's a significant piece of geography out there. It's a rapidly changing environment. The growth in in economies, the nations there, that you know, the burgeoning economies there, that we know that we all want to be involved in you know, post our you know departure from the EU with Brexit, you know, looking at trade agreements. Uh, you know, as a maritime nation, they are absolutely critical to the, the confidence and buoyancy of our economy, and therefore we need to secure that. And defence has a part to play in it. But the world is changing at an unprecedented scale and, and pace. And and I think those threats are more diverse than we've ever, ever seen. So we know that we're going to have to be ready to respond to those unexpected events. And you can only do that if you're flexible and you're engaged and you've got to be on that front foot to ensure that you can be there proactively and meet those demands. And that plays to being sort of more persistently engaged, forward-based and operating so that you're, you're with your friends and allies, you understand their thinking, you're able to operate together You know, as I say, the speed of relevance, but also the speed of technology, you know, whether that's weapons, information systems, artificial intelligence, you know, all of those play a part and why we need to be in the Indo-Pacific region, working with our friends and allies to make sure that we've got that connective tissue.
0: Earlier in the podcast, you mentioned that one of the reasons that the Indo-Pacific region was chosen was that it presented, given the distance of the Indo-Pacific region from the UK, a number of logistics challenges and really stretched the carrier strike group. Noting the increase of Royal Navy operations in the Indo-Pacific, what do you see as some of the challenges for the Royal Navy in operating in this region?
1: clearly geography and logistics is one and that is challenging and we need to understand the region we need to understand where you can do certain activity and where you can't and that's just in the maintenance and support of our platforms and if we know the euro atlantic like the back of our hand and we've probably operated in the arabian gulf area you know persistently over the last 20 years or so and we know that area well they're just supporting our platforms further east it's understanding, you know, where can you do things if you need maintenance and supply? Where can you get equipment support, personnel? Where can you month those through? Get commercial support, uh, industrial support to just to, to undertake routine activity. So that's a baseline, and and, and that will come, uh, you know. And clearly, we learn that all the time, and we we talk to our close friends and partners, whether that's the Royal Australian Navy or the the Japanese Maritime Self Defence Force or whoever it may be. You know, we work closely with with those. But then, more broadly, you know, and I think I've touched on this, you know, whether it's that region or the Atlantic um, or the Mediterranean, there are sort of pervasive challenges I think that are facing us all at the moment. You know, macroeconomics, inflation, certainly back in the UK, you know, watching closely the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. There's the regional tensions that we've seen, you know, in the last couple of weeks or so with China's behaviour with regard to Taiwan, but I think. All of that, whilst it may have changed or initiated since the Integrated Review, the points and the thoughts uh, and the decisions and recommendations that were made there and also in the command paper, I think continue to hold true. Uh, And our first Sea Lord, Admiral Key, spoke recently about about a number of these challenges and, and, and the need to double down on the conclusions we're in there. But without complacency... Recognize the context that we're operating in is subtly shifting and, and we need to adopt the Navy, the force structures, how we operate in order to deliver you know, on the integrated reviews, conclusions and vision. You know, increasing likelihood or risk of a return to state-on-state conflict. Underpinning that is the importance of allies, partnerships, the need for defense to future proof by embracing technology and innovation. You know, the paper reiterated the need for joined up approaches across government. And we've got to embrace talent to deal with that problem and that talent doesn't always necessarily lie in uniform in the way we've recruited our people in the past we've got to look at differently and again we can learn from allies and partners in different regions and in different areas of our own government as to how you do that to make sure you know we a phrase we're using is about the whole force and by that i mean it's not just those in uniform that's our contractors our industry partners our civil servants our friends across government it's that whole force that makes you you know relevant and agile to To meet some of these challenges.
0: Steve, looking at your extensive command history, I note your time in command of Coalition Task Force 150 as part of the Combined Maritime Forces, a key maritime security body dealing with maritime security challenges posed by non-state actors in the Middle East. I note recently that at the RIMPAC exercise, the largest naval exercise in the world, Admiral Boyle, commander of the Third Fleet, mentioned that there may be something in establishing a CMF-like activity or exercise for the Pacific. Given your experience in CMF, do you see any merit in this proposal?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I was particularly struck when I was working with CMF and a real privilege to command Task Force 150. There aren't many places in the world, you know, and I've lost track now, but it's in excess of 30 nations from across the world. They're not just regional. This is a Global group of nations that are operating together with liaison officers and expertise. Uh, you know, it's based in Bahrain, but the work that it's doing is fantastic. And the rolemont of command opportunities. You know, I think in the period I was there, with the different nations commanding the different task force, you had from the Royal Navy. We did it collaboratively with the French. We handed over to the uh, Saudi Arabian headquarters. Pakistani uh, teams that have commanded. Japanese, Korean, Singaporean, Turkish, I mean, you name it, nations have commanded in that region. So if you map that further east uh, into the Indo-Pacific, you know, when we were operating there last year on CSG 21, you know, I described the nations that we were there with, but at the same time in different areas of the South China Sea, you had the Royal Australian Navy doing one of their sort of annual deployments uh, that had a range of regional nations participating. We were joined by Canadians, Japanese units, uh, the New Zealanders joined us. There was a German warship that came through shortly thereafter. So that just shows you the number of nations that that region is important to, that they feel that they want to have a presence and operate there. So you could definitely see why there may be merit in having some form of gathering akin to a CMF that just coheres activity. And if you think of the stuff that CMF does across the Western Indian Ocean, you know, it's providing advice to the maritime shipping community. It's looking for illegal activity, be that piracy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so those principles, I think, are, are sound wherever you are in the world. So, you know, I would definitely support Third Fleet's view that, you know, there could well be something in it. Um, you know, CMF is, is a wonderful opportunity uh, and a wonderful organisation where, the exchange of ideas, exchange of best practice, nations coming together that, you know, like-minded with a common view wanting to ultimately ensure that trade and activity can take place uninhindered and legally on the high seas.
0: We could spend many hours on this topic, but unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. For Admiral Steve Morehouse, it's been wonderful to speak with you since our time in Lancaster all those years ago. Thank you for joining us here at the Saltwater Strategists to talk about Royal Navy operations in the Indo-Pacific region and the significance of this region to global maritime security.
1: Thanks, Jen. An absolute privilege. Thank you.
0: Our guest today on the Saltwater Strategists was Rear Admiral Steve Morehouse, the Royal Navy's Director of Force Generation. Rear Admiral Morehouse has had a distinguished operational career with the Royal Navy and in 2021, commanded the United Kingdom's first Royal Navy carrier strike group to visit the Indo-Pacific in over 20 years. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing, and following The Saltwater Strategist wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on our website, navalinstitute.com.au, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website, A big thank you to our podcast sponsor, BAE Systems, whose support is vital to bringing you these timely and important discussions on maritime security in the Pacific. I'm Jen Parker. Thanks for listening.